VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, June the 16th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer, as you know. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone to give us a call, get in the queue. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free long-distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, I think we got ourselves a series. Here to decide who's going to hoist the Stanley Cup at the end of this 4 out of 7. Colorado just leaps up to a 3-1 lead after the first period. The Lightning storm back to tie it up, and Burakovsky scores the OT winner to give the Avalanche a 1-0 series lead. It's going to be... Awesome. And I want to say congratulations to all of the award winners and scholarship recipients from the Hockey NL Awards that were delivered uh, yesterday, I believe it was. So the story and the names are on our site at VOCM.com as opposed to me reading them all up. But congratulations to you. And I suppose with Iceberg Alley opening up last night and local heavy metal punk faves Bucket Truck on the bill tonight... A couple of interesting music notes. It was 65 years ago today, 1967, that the Montreux Jazz Festival opened up on the shores of Lake Geneva for the first time. Primarily a jazz festival, but get a load of some of the names at the first one. Charles Lloyd, Miles Davis, Keith Jarrett, Weather Report, Nina Simone, The Fourth Way. I mean, pretty intense. By 1990, it became the second largest jazz festival in the world. Millions of people have gone through the gates, so pretty incredible stuff in Montreux. But amazingly, when we talk about jazz in Montreux, Maybe the one of the most historic visuals from that jazz festival is Jimi Hendrix lighting his guitar on fire, right? Anyway, so that's that. And I guess also associated with the music business, it was 42 years ago today, in 1980, that the Blues Brothers, starring, of course, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd as Jake and Elwood Blues, premiered in Chicago where they shot the film. Now, the boys parole convicts on a mission from God to save the foreclosure of the Catholic or- orphanage in which they were raised, it also features one of the funniest, weirdest, greatest car chase scenes in cinematic history. 42 years ago today, the Blues Brothers hit the big screen. Okay. I never know what's going to dominate the email inbox. So for a while there, it was the recreational food fish. We'll get to that in a minute. But an unbelievable number of people chiming in about the superheated rental market, in particular in the Northeast Avalon. Overnight, I'm going to guess I got 10 emails from parents of young people who are coming to St. John's either to continue their education, whether it be CNA, Marine Institute, or Memorial University, or coming for the first time, and now scrambling, looking like they're not going to be able to find a rental. So I guess there's a lots of different reasons as to why that might be the case. Now, tenancy, pardon me, your vacancy, about 7.5% last year this time. Now it's about 3%. So whether it be that there's all-time high prices for people to sell their home, cash out, Maybe buy a new home and move on. Maybe it's so many rental units, long-term rentals have turned into Airbnbs. Of course, taking some maybe 50 units off the market. 50 is a lot. Maybe it be just more people here looking, moving towards the Northeast Avalon from other parts of the world or other parts of the province. Maybe it's about the unbelievable harsh stress test to get a mortgage these days, which is keeping people in the rental market. Whatever it is, it's a massive issue. If I'm Memorial University, in an effort to help students, whether it be returnees or those coming for their first year, I'm going to find out, I'm going to speak with the administration at the Simon Fraser University about how they launched their home share program. Every little bit is going to help here. 
So what they're doing out of Simon Fraser in British Columbia, students get vetted and matched up with adults 55 years of age or older, get a break on the rent for chipping in on the house chores. Shoveling snow maybe here in this part of the country, but it seems like a way to try to alleviate some of the stress that these families are feeling at this moment. Add into the national disgrace, that is, the search, the quest, and the irritants to find affordable housing. I heard Brian Major in the newscast talk about that in the city of Halifax, they're now going to allow people to camp in public green spaces. What is going on? Modern-day Canada, and we've had to go all the way down the road to people camping out in the parks, as opposed to being able to find a safe, reasonable place to lay their head. I mean, it's just something else, but the supercharged market here is becoming a huge issue. And then, of course, you'll have some landlords, maybe some people might refer to some of them as slum landlords, evicting their tenants, jacking up the price for rentals. It's becoming a real tsunami of a housing problem here. And then maybe some of the homes that have been sold for whopping big prices. We've also got an issue, maybe not so much here, although I don't have the data, but certainly around the country, is the big, whether it be property management companies sometimes, or corporations, or deep-pocketed individuals that are buying up houses to have them as pieces of equity, you know, revenue streams. There's nothing necessarily wrong with having some homes to rent out. There's not. But some big entities get really carried away with it. So we have a real concentration issue that is part of the complexity of the rental market and affordable housing. But if you want to talk about it, like so many people in my email inbox, we can do exactly that. And so this particular upcoming speech today might not do much for uh, easing the rental woes or affordable housing here in Canada and or this province. The Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, Krista Freeland, going to deliver her first major speech since the budget, going to take place, I think, at the Empire Club in Toronto, home of the muckety-muck. All right. So it's all about trying to deal with rising inflation. You know, whether it be the Bank of Canada's role, we've heard what Mr. Poliev has said about firing Tiff Macklin as soon as he gets the premier, the prime minister's seat. You know, that's in his hope to be the next prime minister. $7 billion is not going to do much to deal with inflation necessarily, but it may indeed be a structure to compensate for inflation. What might be the outcome here? I don't know what's going to be in her speech. But let's hope it's not a regurgitation or a re-announcement of measures that are already known to Canadians inside the budget, whether it be a $7 billion price tag or otherwise. So likely going to see increases to old age security, the Canada housing benefit, the workers benefit, the Canada child benefit. That will still leave a huge swath of all the political parties who are clamoring to get the support of whatever the middle class means these days. Some of these additional uh, sports may not make it to folks who are already and in, in the middle of the struggle, which is mighty, and it's real. So here comes an announcement from the Deputy Prime Minister. I'll be interested to hear what it is, but let's hope it's not just an opportunity to speak to the Empire Club members about something that was already in the budget and discussed and understood by Canadians, but we'll see where it goes. But anyway, repeat announcements is a frustration for many. And while we all struggle... You know, politicians and appointees are entitled to their entitlements, right? Or they sure act like they are. So the optics of some of these issues is really infuriating or frustrating, depending on who you are, where you are, and your political ideology or your leanings. But when the governor general, look, there's still going to be need for government officials to travel sometimes. 
but maybe not as frequently and is as lavish a form as we've seen. I know prime ministers of all stripes, there's a need to be in the room with people sometimes, oftentimes. Okay. And for the Queen's representative to go to like Expo 2022 in Dubai, uh, we can debate whether or not that's required, but it's the way they behave sometimes. So on this trip, over the course of, I think it was eight days, the 16th of March to the 24th, Mary Simon, the Governor General, and 29 of her guests, staffers and otherwise, their catering bill alone was $93,000. So I know there's a lot included in it. It just doesn't mean the type of fare that they consumed, but there's all sorts of issues about how much and what other expenses are involved in catering. But, you know, and then the Governor General's office, through Rito Halls yesterday, said that the Governor General shares the public's concerns. You know, it reminds people of the bad vote of $16 glass of orange juice. While politicians and appointees see and hear what Canadians are dealing with, whether it be cost of living issues, looking for a rental, looking for an affordable home, filling up their tanks, whether it be at their home and or their vehicle, these things are just completely unnecessary and irresponsible. $93,000 worth of catering. I mean, should the Governor General be traveling to these events at this day and age, this time? Uh, maybe. You know, so they had to pick her up on a Royal Canadian Air Force, a Royal Canadian Air Force uh, jet, pick her up in London as she was being received by the Queen to make her way to the Middle East. But those types of things just don't jive with Canadians as we're talking about all the other pressures that we're enduring. But if you want to tackle it, we can do it. Sticking with Ottawa for a second here. So the private member's bill brought forward by Conservative Party of Canada member Clifford Small from this province, of course, Central Coast of Bays, Notre Dame. His bill talking about an annual census on seals and sea lions and walruses and talking about opening up uh, increased market opportunities for the products. It died on the vine. It died on the vine. So, of course, it was going to require significant support from across the aisle given the partnership or the relationship between the Liberals and the NDP. As far as I can understand, and please set the record straight if I'm wrong, none of our six Liberal members support, uh, voted in support of it. Now, it would have only made its way to committee for maybe further amendments and or further consideration and debate, but it's gone. Now, there are a few people, or I don't know how many people, there's people out there that think that the seal conversation's over, right? The political will to do anything about it is over. And so we've got some of these smoke and mirrors affairs like the upcoming seal summit. Is that going to make any advancements in trying to talk about the conservation or the rebuilding of the northern cod stock and other species? I don't know. Right? It's 32 years ago that Leslie Harris put forward recommendations to deal with and talk about recovery measures and the predation of seals, by seals. So it, it's gone. It just didn't get anywhere. And so that private member's bill is dead in the water. And, of course, I wish I had an update for those of you emailing and wondering when you're going to be able to book your trip to get out and jig a cod in the recreational food fishery this come home year. We still don't know. Seems to me it should be time pretty soon to get it going. Last year it opened on the 3rd of July. It won't be that now. I mean, anyway, let's keep going. The price of gas. Well, you know, it's probably easy enough to say the price of everything's going up, including gas, including diesel, including furnace oil and stove oils. So 1.2 cents per liter on gasoline, and it's up out of diesel as well. But with the annual price freeze being removed up in central Labrador, the price of unleaded gas per liter up 62 cents. Oh, man, 
up 62 cents in central Labrador. Another huge increase in the price of diesel in that region as well. Not the exact same amount, but it is huge. I had it here somewhere, but a little bit blurry out here this morning after watching the hockey game. But everything up. Imagine that increase in gas and diesel in parts of Labrador. But here we go. At some point, look, I had a chat with someone yesterday off air. You know, reflecting back on pandemic supports, and I would imagine that the road to economic recovery would have been far more severe had there not been some of the supports offered by the federal government, whether it be the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, the CERB, wage subsidies for businesses. It was required, maybe some additional oversight as to who was applying and getting it and using it for what. So I think it was necessary in some form, but of course it had to have a sunset clause where it went away, just like other mandates. But at what point does it become necessary for the government, whether it be in the speech coming from uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland today or other measures, because unless we know where this ends and where some of these price pressures are going to ease, the economic impact is very, very real. People are doing less. You know, whether it be like the economy is not driven by the government, the economy is driven by me and you. But if people have even changed their eating habits, and people have changed their driving habits. And people are purchasing the appliances and the TVs and the new furniture and other services. It's going to be widespread. So it won't be just about me and you feeling the pinch as we go to the grocery store and or the gas station. But the other businesses that we would have supported a bit more freely in years past with whatever bit of cash you had to use for discretionary purposes. So at some point, is there going to be the need for more intervention? I don't know. And I, don't, I know that people will say that printing money has got us where we are regarding inflation in particular. Even though there's some truth to that, maybe that's, that, that's not the entire picture because we can't see. And all you have to do is look around the world at what inflationary numbers look like in various countries. But anyway, the pinch is real. Let's look at some upside stuff. So people are familiar with the story now that uh, British petroleum giant BP has come to town and opened an office here in St. John's. And they've bought out Synovus and their 35% stake in the Beta Nord project. All good news. Now the deal, I'm sure it doesn't really matter regarding the money, $600 million in cash, a contingent payment of $600 million based on the linkage with the price of a barrel of oil. So they seem bullish on it. But here's something else. We know that some of the transitionary fuel, the cleaner fuels regarding green hydrogen, and we've got a proposal for the Port of Argentia from Pattern Energy, John Risley and his group out of the Port of Stephenville, but BP is all in on this stuff. And I wonder what their next foray is in this province in the energy business. So BP's acquisition of a stake and lead role in a $36 billion green hydrogen development in Western Australia. So green hydrogen, we've got the issues required to deal with green, green hydrogen. Water, renewable electricity, very likely wind farms, even though solar might not be a big part of it. It is going to be a monumental opportunity for places in the world that have all the assets required for water electrolysis and the development and the distribution of green hydrogen. So BP is big on this. They're huge on this. Wood Mackenzie Limited forecasts that the demand for low carbon hydrogen could surge to as high as 600 million tons a year by 2050. At this moment, we're developing some 1 million tons now. So by 2050, 600 million compared to a million tons today. BP is in on this. They've got a stake in various hydrogen projects around the world. So I know times feel tough, and maybe there's some resurgence in the oil business, which is not a win on some people's minds. But hydrogen and the mining opportunities here in the province, maybe I'm kidding myself, but I continue to be 
optimistic about the medium and long term. We need some immediate fixes and solutions and relief of pressure. But you wonder what BP has up their sleeve when it comes to the hydrogen world, because they're a massive player. I mean, they're the lead on a $36 billion project in Western Australia, which I think tells the tale pretty much in full. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? There's so much that we can discuss. Whatever I bring up, if you're interested in it, you can speak to it or bring up a topic of your choosing. And this one, for information purposes. So the weekly update of the COVID hub. Hospitalizations have increased from 5 to 14. Four in critical care, which is up from two. The province is re uh, reporting three additional COVID-related deaths. We have no idea what the prevalence of the virus is in the, in the community. And again, I have no interest in making anyone feel afraid to do stuff. This is for information. There are some curious parts. Like, it's frustrating to read at the bottom of the news stories, and I know it's necessary to include the information, is that it does not reflect the true spread of COVID that, that, that because of the change in testing. But whether people like it or not, the issue surrounding long COVID is real. Just hearing from doctors around the country and the numbers of people being referred to them who are suffering the fallout months after they contracted the virus. Here's the problem with that. Because there's going to be specialists that deal with this particular issue, just given the numbers of Canadians that are going to need this type of help and medical intervention. With the change in testing, how are people going to be able to show, to prove, that they belong on the patient roster at a long COVID clinic if they weren't given a PCR test by public health and recorded as positive? That's something we haven't really considered. And I know so many people, including me, could not be more tired of COVID. And I've tried not to talk a whole lot about it, but pretending it's not there doesn't mean it's gone away. But that issue regarding long COVID and being formally tested so that you can be monitored, you can possibly qualify as a patient for one of these types of clinics, which will absolutely be happening. There's plenty of news out there about it and comments coming from specific doctors about just how overwhelmed they are with patients suffering months after they contracted the virus. So that's something we can talk about. If you are so inclined, we can talk about whatever you like. We're on Twitter or VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. And it's such a nice day. It's going to be somewhere in the 20s here in, the, in town anyway sometime later today. Looks like a nice weekend in the offing. So a little sunshiny tunage. 1970, dominating the UK chart with Mungo Jerry in the summertime. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number three. Good morning, Jessica. You're on the air. Good morning. I'm a first-time caller. Welcome I don't to the show. Call. Thank you. I don't call because I don't like to complain or talk about the province or whatnot, but I feel the people need to hear the situation. Okay, what's happening? Uh, so I am currently homeless and sleeping on because the Newfoundland Labrador housing is refusing to put me in a shelter because of my life choices. Now, in saying that, my life choices is not normal like anybody else's. Um, most people, and I mean, like, I understand everybody makes their choices, and we all make our beds, and we have to sleep in them. And yes, I agree with that to a certain extent, but my 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 choices and my decisions is I don't want to live in the house that I was living in because there was nothing but expired food and drugs going around 24-7 and I'm not a drug person. I don't want and I don't want to be doing drugs at all and it was constantly being offered to me in the house I was living in. 
So I left and walked off of the property and said I would not return. When I phoned Newfoundland Housing yesterday, they said that I had to return and they would not give me a room to stay or would not even let me go to the gathering place. So I went to a park bench last night and slept there and woke up sometime last night and I was that cold that I could not feel my feet and my legs. So I ended up coming to the hospital and getting checked out. I was not frostbitten, but pretty close to it. I was that cold. These stories are extremely difficult to hear. Okay, so uh, there's a reference to lifestyle choices in my subject line, which I don't know what it means. Do you want to expand on that, how that's impacting your inability to get somewhere to stay? Uh, Yes, so um, it's impacting my, my, my able to get somewhere to stay because, like I said, I don't want to be doing drugs. I don't want to be drinking. I don't want to have anything to do with that kind of lifestyle um my lifestyle is i go to church i'm a strong believer in jesus christ and i worship jesus christ and i am judged for that strongly and people look at me and look down on me because of my relationship with jesus christ Uh, you know a, a bit of live and let live is a lost art here sometimes in society you know People needn't begrudge people their own faith-based systems or whatever they consider to be their moral compass or their spirituality. You know, there is a time where some people of staunch faith maybe are a bit too in people's face for, for their own personal comfort, but who you love and who you believe in and who you trust is up to you. So it's unfortunate that you're feeling that way about something that is as personal as your faith-based leanings or faith-based uh personality and or your mind so anyway this is just awful so what now where do you turn um basically um i turn back to the park bench tonight you mentioned your relationship no no money no nothing a couple of things uh food first nl has some some emergency service available for food so please do connect with them, and I'll put you on hold, and Dave can give you some information, maybe, Dave, if you have a second. And also, you mentioned your uh, relationship with the church. Have you tried any church groups to help you out, especially with somewhere to lay your head? Yes. Yeah, so I actually went to my church last night, and uh, they gave me a little bag of four bite-sized muffins and a hat to put on my head and dropped me off downtown St. John's and said, good luck, we'll be praying for you. Oh, my. So, uh, Dave, can you punch up some information for Food First and I'll put Jessica on hold. We'll see if we can get you some food to start. And opportunities for somewhere safe to live. I mean, there's so many sitting rooms and what have you that are available, but you're surrounded with people not only that you don't know, but who might be dangerous, and then it's the presence of drugs and potential for violence. I don't blame you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like anywhere that anyone would want to live and to be safe. So when I put you on hold, David's going to give you some information to get you some emergency food. We will also uh, uh, put out some feelers about places for emergency shelter. Not sure what we can do in the very quick order here, but I will try, and we'll get you some food. Thank you very much, sir. Have a lovely day. You too, Jessica. You take good care. You're going to be put on hold here now. You'll speak with David, okay? 
Yep. Okay. Anybody have any housing input that they'd like to share with us, please do, and we'll get her some food. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let us now go. Where am I going, David? Line number who? Line number four. Okay, it's called line number four. Say so good morning to the executive director. Head Trades and L, that's Darren King. Good morning, Darren. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm doing fairly well, thanks. How about you? Good, good. I'm doing good, thanks. I appreciate you taking my call. I, I wanted to give you a call for a, a minute just to do a plug for a new video we launched this week on Indigenous skilled trades. Um, we actually uh, launched the video about uh, two weeks ago privately at the Canadian Apprenticeship Forum Conference, Patty, in, in uh, Halifax. But uh, this week we launched it publicly, and, and the, I guess what I want to do is just give a plug and, and encourage people to go have a look at it on our website and our social media purpose really twofold one is to uh, promote the work of our office in labrador and what we're doing to support skilled trades indigenous skilled trades persons and the second of course is to promote skilled trades generally as a, a really good career option for the future so you know opening up this office so in the air of inclusivity of course but of course this also factors into how we structure benefits agreements as well i imagine yeah, it certainly does. Uh, I mean, one is not connected to the other. No, no. Uh, but 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 yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, what we've learned over the years is that uh, on multi- multiple projects where we've worked, that um, the indigenous population generally has not availed to the to of jobs to the degree they could. So, a big function of this office is identifying uh, current indigenous uh, tradespersons and help them get through their apprenticeship to their journey persons. So we provide a case managed approach and help them take them in and get them into a database and take them from say point a right through to their journey person uh, but the other is to promote the trades amongst indigenous population because there's as you would know any number of potential jobs whether it's gall island or search minerals or any number of other projects between labrador and the island and and with the benefits agreements the indigenous group does get preferential hiring but it's only if they have the qualifications so we're really trying to beef up our list there as well so that more of them are able to capitalize on the future job opportunities so it's one thing to move them help them move from apprentice to journey person or red seal or what have you but how about connecting those who are interested with the required training to even start the journey yeah, so we do that as well. We do that as well. Um, anyone who's interested in, in skilled trades career can come to our office, and and we provide the same kind of uh, level of counselling. Whether you know they're looking for a, a pipe fitting trade or an worker trade or whatever the case might be, we'll provide options to them on where they can go to uh, to first of all get the training, but secondly, where they might go should they need financial support. So it's 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 really a sort of a counselling case managed approach. No matter where they come from when they come into the office, whether they're they're just looking to do the trade or whether they get pre-apprenticeship completed and want to do their journey person. We'll take them from where they enter and move them through the process. And it's, it's been very effective. We've, you know, we've developed a database now of about 300 in Labrador. Um, and, and thus far, the work has been primarily with the Ninu Nation. Um, we are hoping to expand the office to the island to have some uh, caseworkers on the island so that we can work with those three groups who have members here, but also Alapu Nation and Khan River, of course. And, is, and Patty, I, I have to add, it, it's um, the partnership started with Indian Nation and also in the provincial government, and we've we've expanded that now, <clears throat> excuse me, to other Indigenous groups. But we really want to offer kudos to government and the premier. Uh, the premier himself is actually in the video, uh, but government really stepped up to the plate 
with funding for this office and uh, it's, it's certainly showing rewards but I want to I just want to highlight the fact that they are a major partner here I don't want to deflect from the specific issue that you called on but I know you got your ear to the ground and talk with the uh, private sector entrance whether it be in oil and gas or minerals or some of the move towards green hydrogen I mentioned off the top you know pattern energy out in Argentia and John Risley and his group out in Stephenville and with BP coming to town and taking uh, buying Sanofis shares in Beta Nord and I also read about BP and their forays into green hydrogen and they're a huge player are you hearing anything more about some of these types of projects because it's not just about the the just transition of fossil fuels it's job opportunities it's expanded tax base what are you hearing well you know, interesting question for sure um, I think you know no coincidence with, with the talk around the move away from oil in the last 18 to 24 months in particular uh, the talk around those projects that you've talked about are, are heightened. Uh, we've we've been talking to a number of other proponents that you haven't mentioned. Uh, yeah, and so there's I, I think um, I think say 12 months ago there were projects in the offing that were sort of yeah you know hopefully down the road we'll see that happen. Today I think these are realities, and I think these projects are starting to move and get some traction within. The, the environmental departments and within the other government departments. So I think you're going to see some good traction there. The LNG is another great one that uh, we've already been meeting with the proponent on there for Newfoundland, uh, for the island of Newfoundland. Uh, and there's there's a combination, as you said, of great job opportunities on the onset for the construction, uh, the skilled trades. There's lots of jobs there. Uh, some of them are going to look different than they did in the past. And our organization is really focused on that and what kind of upskill training, you know, our current trades people will require to maximize their opportunity. Uh, but in addition to construction, once the projects are done, there's the ongoing day-to-day operation of the project. So tremendous opportunities. I think you're absolutely right. While we don't want to lose focus of the oil that we have and the opportunities here, I think all of us have to make sure that we have our eye on the ball to transition, uh, in my organization at least, to the skills that are going to be required to maximize the opportunities for local residents. Well, a lot of these things can happen concurrently sometimes i think some of the conversation feels like or starts with it's a one or the other it needn't be that way and of course it won't be that way you know while we see where money is going and that's another facet of this conversation is where the capital is and how interested some of these lenders are in one type of project or another one alternative form of energy or another you know oil companies will tell you that it's becoming harder to get money to invest in exploration based on their own uh, shareholders decision making but also the capital markets but hydrogen I would imagine that this looks very attractive in some of these portfolios. So it's it's a it's an ever-changing world and it's not overnight. So we can keep our eye on multiple prizes at the same time when we talk about economic opportunity. You absolutely nailed it. Uh, you know, the, the the process whether it's an oil project or a wind project or Muskrat or sorry, Gull Island like a hydro project, you know, there's multiple layers of discussions going on every day at government's level and and uh, contractors and owners and those trying to raise capital but at the same time to your point i think it's important for us as an organization and others in the province who are connected to make sure that we continuously develop the skilled trades so that we're ready to take advantage of the opportunities because to uh, I, I guess to go against what you said what we would see happen is a project would drop on our steps in, in, a, in a period of time then we'd say uh-oh we're not prepared to, to construct that, so it's going to be done elsewhere or parts of it elsewhere. So you're right. You know, a lot of things have to happen simultaneously, and uh, it requires a lot of planning, a lot of foresight, and, uh, and that's a collaborative effort between us and training schools and, uh, and government for sure. But we have to keep our eye on the ball, multiple balls. Absolutely, and I think we have the horsepower here to do exactly that. Uh, like I've said repeatedly, some people tell me that I'm a fool to feel this way, but I remain optimistic in the future.
care. I, I just do. I know we're feeling the pinch now, and I think it's there's better days to come. And I'm not a cockeyed optimist. I'm very much realistic about these things, but I feel good. And I want my boys to be able to live here and have profitable, healthy, safe futures right here where we live today and will forever, as far as I can tell. Well, you know, I'm with you on that. I'm an optimist as well. And like you, I've enjoyed a great life here so far. And i got two children here, and they're doing well and, and want them to be able to raise families themselves. And I think the you know the, the resources we have in the province and, and the skill set and the talent we have in the province is just tremendous. It's just a matter of making sure that we stay focused on um, what we can achieve and keep striving towards it. As you said, to use your words, you know, multiple balls at the same time. We don't we don't wait till A gets done before we start B. We've got to always be prepared. Uh, or as Wayne Gretzky would say, we've got to be ready to be where the puck is going, not wait till the puck gets there, you know? Uh, and this, of course, has nothing to do with it. That's a great one. But uh, Boys on the Bus, the Edmonton Oiler documentary, and they're talking about uh, Gretzky with the puck all the time. He said, hey, that's my puck. Go get your own puck. Uh, <laughs> just love it. Uh, Darren, good to have you on the show. Good luck with the new uh, offering in Labrador. Stay in touch. Yeah, thanks a lot, Patty. Just one quick 10 seconds. Encourage people to have a look at our website and have a look at our video. It's only about two and a half minutes, but it's a great showcase of our indigenous trades and what's happening in the province. Thanks again for taking my call. Always a pleasure. Chat again soon. Okay, Darren. Thank you for your time. Bye-bye. That's Darren King. He's the ED at Trades NL. Let's go to line two. Jason, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How you doing? Not too bad. Thank you. How about you? All right. Um, yeah, I'm calling in because uh, basically I've been, you know, sort of opposed to Canada's uh, outlook on the uh, Ukraine conflict from the beginning, because I feel that we've left our, you know, more traditional peacekeeping role, of, you know, remaining neutral, suing for peace, trying to get a ceasefire, create a buffer zone, bring in, you know, neutral parties to monitor the buffer zone is the best way to move towards peace. And peace is always going to be better than war for the citizens of any country. Of course, and, I suppose what is also playing an active role is with our NATO allies and their position on it and the I guess the want to be in lockstep, I suppose that has a great influence on uh, diplomacy, diplomatic measures, provision of weaponry and humanitarian aid. I, I guess that's part of it, Jason. What do you think? Well, yes, it's definitely. We're, we're definitely part of NATO, which would have made it much more difficult for us to stay neutral in this conflict because NATO clearly has, you know, interest in the, in this region. And they've, uh, but we've, I mean, there's a, there's a total difference from us actually, you know, buying weapons and sending them into a war zone, knowing that they're intended, you know, to, to take human life and us trying to promote peace. Um, and I'm just I've also been wondering when people are going to sort of catch on. We're kind of stuck because we're in war in the middle of a bunch as we're, we, we've clearly allied ourselves with Ukrainian, you know, government and therefore whatever they're going to be, you know, saying we're going to support. Um, and I know as, as a student of history, you know that as well as I do, that leading up to, during, and post-conflict, governments weaponize their media because it's just another tool in the toolbox. So, you know, part of, I'm, I'm just thinking that we, in our current media, we're not really hearing, you know, sort of the whole truth because we have to, you know, sort of philosophically support Ukraine and and essentially, you know, the government tends to come in when there's any war or crisis and say to the media, listen, we're all on the same team here. You guys have to make sure that the people understand, you know, how dangerous this threat is so that you'll support our decisions and be willing to make the sacrifices necessary to achieve victory. Yeah, I mustn't be on their uh, their contact list. 
Well, that's good. You know, some people get out of it. Yeah. Okay, um, so what truths are being omitted? Because as much as it feels like support for Ukraine, I think it's much more about dealing with Russian aggression. Now, they're, they're kind of the same thing. I'm splitting a very fine hair. But I think there's a key difference between that we're all in for Zelensky versus we're all opposed to Putin. I think there's a little bit of difference there that craft messages would determine support, whether it be humanitarian, weaponry, or otherwise. But anyway, what truths are being omitted in your opinion? Well, I don't know that we're going to, because both sides are going to be pumping propaganda out. So finding the actual truth, I think, is next to impossible at this juncture. It's more about being aware that what we're hearing is going to be affected by propaganda. You know, I mean... Back in, like, you go back to the, you know, the first desert storm uh, after Iraq invaded Kuwait. The, uh, was it the, I think it was the ambassador, the daughter of the, amb- the Kuwaiti ambassador to America, or, yeah, went and testified before Congress that Iraqi soldiers, right after they invaded, had gone in, walked into hospitals, pulled babies out of incubators, and t- stole the incubators. And later on, you know, nobody really paid attention, but that was complete political theater. It was just... You know, all propaganda designed to demonize the enemy to justify what you're going to do against them. Fair enough. And, and I mean, even at those times, it was the first time, I guess, really, where we saw media reporters embedded with the troops, and we still didn't get a clear picture. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, that led into, you know, the next time we got it, you know, went to war with Iraq, there were supposedly weapons of mass destruction that were never existed, and we know they never even had evidence of. But at the time, you know, France jumped up and said, listen, we've got no evidence of weapons of mass destruction. If you take Saddam Hussein out, you're going to completely destabilize the region. Hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. Uh, you know, millions are going to suffer for decades, and you're going to create a hotbed for terrorism. And the American response was, if you don't value this, you know, you don't support this invasion, you don't value freedom. And do you remember freedom fries in yeah, the States? I do. <laughs> like, like, just like... It's, I mean, it, there's no logic to that statement, which means it's clearly, you know, it's a propaganda designed to, again, encourage, you know, support for whatever they're trying to do. But they invaded another, you know, a foreign country. Where are the massive reparations they're paying for an illegal invasion, of, you know, headed by the U.S. And, and England? And, you know, whereas Russia crossed the border and boom, there were sanctions right away. Like, we've had, we've had 20 years ago, yeah, that was wrong. And still not... You know, hold them accountable. Well, you know, it's an interesting point in that even public support for accepting Ukrainian refugees felt much different than it did for Afghanis, and it felt much different than it did for Syrians or Somalis. So there's something to be said for that. And I, I don't know where this ends, but some of the countries in the Middle East in particular, I know that you didn't want to stick with that region of the world, but, you know, some of those countries have been at war with each other or internally for decades or centuries. And so how stable they'd be without any foreign intervention or occupation or war is, I have no earthly idea, because the turmoil in the Middle East, until you, you know, you speak with people from their lived experience or really try to follow it as close as you possibly can, it's unstable by its own very nature. And whether that be relationship and opposition in, on, the, on the West Bank, all the way into Kabul, and all the way over to Tehran, there's just so, so much in the way of historical complexities that military intervention by the world's police force that was once the United States of America, I don't know what the world would feel like or look like if they had not done those things. But, of course, we all paid a dear price for those lies and manipulation. Uh, Jason, I'll give you the last word on whatever you, you want to say about either Ukraine or otherwise. Um, yeah, no, it's just that it, I know everyone's jumped on the Ukraine banner and, and the Ukrainians are clearly suffering. But 
we seem to have forgotten that numerous other countries have suffered and we just kind of ignore them. So, you know, I think we need to maybe take a little more measured approach when we look at this conflict because we've been, you know, assisted in supporting parties who have done the same thing and we've not held them accountable in the same way we're trying to hold Russia accountable. There's at least 47,000 people who have been killed. There's 15 million approximately have been displaced. And then, of course, the human toll is one thing. Uh, physical property damage estimated $600 billion, and yet we're still yet to understand what an off-ramp looks like or how this comes to some sort of resolution, peacefully or otherwise. I uh, appreciate the time, Jason. Thanks for the call. Oh, thanks for letting me talk, Patty. Appreciate take, it. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Robin's here to talk about affordable housing and addiction services. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Robin. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Beautiful morning. Lovely. <laughs> um, I am calling to talk about um, a couple of issues and possibly a few that are directly related to each other um, and are affected by each other and the ways in which um, they are a result, I believe, of policy failures <laughs> or lack of uh, updated policies. So as you know, your callers this morning, I believe it was Jessica who was sleeping on a park bench last night and a caller yesterday who talked about being in a transition house um, and trying to access addiction services. And so there's a, there's a bunch of areas where um, these, these things are meeting um, and causing the situation that we're seeing now to become much worse. And so um, I'd like to give you an example um, in terms of addictions of how um, it's been an issue within the Tessier Park neighborhood that I live in. So there's been a drug house on Livingstone Street for a minimum of five years um, that I know of for sure. And residents have done everything in their power um, to try and have it addressed, and it has not been addressed. And about two weeks ago, the RNC went in there finally and busted it and um, arrested someone. So for the five years that they didn't do anything, they allowed a number of people, that allowed a number of people who were suffering um, to become either more addicted, um, to get access to tainted drugs, um, drugs, you know, with fentanyl or whatever, uh, to overdose, um, and, and really exacerbate because it was so easily accessed. And towards the end, it was at the point where people were smoking crack on the front steps <laughs> of this this house. So now that it's stopped, there are all these people within the neighborhood now who now have addictions majorly, but no access to any services. And so, you know, they're finding themselves in situations where um, they have no homes uh, because it's, it's jumping up against the rental crisis that we're facing right now. And so all these things are, are exacerbated into one. And so people now in my neighborhood are trying to find drugs. And so it means that they're, they're willing to try more dangerous drugs, uh, more expensive drugs. They're more desperate in, in what they have to do to get those drugs. And you can feel it in the neighborhood. You can sense it on the street. And... And then on top of that, I'm sorry, it's multi-pronged, we have a, a, a landlord who owns a number of homes in my neighborhood 
who continues to um, evade the law, um, get away with it, and treat people like they're, they're secondhand citizens and that they have no rights. And he does this on the ground that um, – just one second, sir. Okay. Not sure what happened there, but um, maybe we can pick it up when she's freer than it seems. Something happened anyway. Hopefully she's okay. So, you know, some of that, I, I got an email yesterday after we spoke about uh, addiction services, what have you, and the caller referred to these addictions as a disease, which they are. And you know, I don't know if it's government policy when they wet their finger and see which way the wind is blowing. And they have focus groups to determine what's important. And, of course, the same things are at the top of, of most people's lists. The economy and jobs and taxes and health care, the environment and criminal justice, and wherever it is that they lean. And somewhere education should be much higher up that list, as I repeatedly say. But the likelihood of government policy being misguided or not even there, because it's an unfortunate reality that there's a significant swath of Canadians don't care. They just don't care because they view it as the ne'er-do-wells and those living in the shadows and the criminal element and you made your own bed and you lie in it. When turning our backs to it, even if you're just all about physical conservatism, for instance, even if that's your position in this world, it's costing us dearly. It truly is. It's not only societal and moral failing. It is costing us billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars every single year. So... Sometimes not caring about something doesn't mean that turning our back on it makes it go away or it's not important and it doesn't impact your life because it just does. Anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, lots of time left in the program to speak with you on a topic of your choosing right after this newscast. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the West Coast representative for the FFAW. That's Jason Spingle. Jason, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I hope the weather is as nice your way. I just traveled from there yesterday. It was, seemed to be nice that way, too. So at least we'll enjoy some good weather. The sun is splitting the rocks. Good stuff. Yeah, we can use a little bit of it this way. Yep. Uh, yeah, no, the shrimp fishery is, uh, is my focus this morning, of course. And I guess it's tied to, uh, you know, uh, other issues, you know, um, after a couple of very positive years, I think positive overall for some species. I think I mentioned that before. We've, uh, of course, with the spring shrimp fishery, we had a, the negotiations that went to the panel. Uh, they selected our position of a dollar forty-two, but since that time, there hasn't been one pound of shrimp bought. Uh, you know, I've represented over here for many, many years the four-hour shrimp fleet, which uh, you know doesn't have one pound of anything else to catch right now. And haven't since, you know, the moratorium, really. They're an exclusive shrimp fleet. And, uh, you know, I reiterate, on the northern peninsula, uh, there are other plants and other people depend on shrimp, too. But the northern peninsula has three shrimp plants. Two of them are exclusive, and then there's one in Labrador that's exclusive shrimp plant. So a very, very important industry, particularly for the great northern peninsula. And right now we're uh, in a conundrum. So I said I just traveled back from St. John's. I participated again along with the committees in the shrimp negotiations. And, you know, discussions started out good and everyone talking about wanting to get a fishery going, the importance of that, and the uh, the outcome of the positions, you know, are uh, are very far apart. Now, all I can say is if you look at our position, uh, there's, a, there's a report called GEMBA, 
the provincial government provides the you know gets that report from a European uh, marketer and uh, there's also another one that's undercurrent based on a smaller US market but anyone that would read the reports and look at the history of the negotiating would say that our position dollar uh, 36 right now is much more in line with what the market says and the markets are cautiously optimistic not surprisingly with covid you know uh, kind of downturn in covid a more uh, return to normal circumstances for most people uh, as opposed to the offer that the uh, ASP, the buyers, put forward again for $0.90. Cents. And, and all you would say with that offer is, and I think if anyone did a little bit of research would say, is just a low-ball offer, they're not really interested. And so we knew this was kind of shaping up. Uh, the, the provincial minister, Minister Bragg, was good enough to come in and meet with us, the negotiating committee. You know, and he asked for, well, what are the solutions here? And we said, look, one of the big factors is yields. Like, you know, and the, but the buyers never want to say, oh, that's confidential information, but they just tell us that, you know, certain aspects are uneconomical, but they don't want to, don't want to say why it is. So we said to the minister, look, you, gave, you give out these licenses. That's a privilege uh, to be able to buy and process fish. And there's, there's, you know, there's things you have to live up to. You know, this is part of huge part of the economy here. And you you can go get the uh, yields from these people, right? Yeah, uh, I, I, I'm not so, so sure. You know, these these things might answer some of the questions. And my final point would be uh, on that is well, let's find out what it is and let the chips fall where they may. But you know, unfortunately, right now we're at a stalemate. And final final point here, uh, it's a, is a very very serious situation for for places like Labrador, the Great Northern Peninsula, and certainly other places that uh, you know that we have a lot of shrimp fishermen on the northeast coast as well so uh, you know i hate the phrase slippery slope but political intervention in profits in the private sector i mean i don't know where that ends but so the question i think is who blinks first because if the processors have their price that they're willing to deal with and to buy shrimp from the harvester you have your price at a dollar 42 there's been a stalemate for me it's and i'm not involved in the fishery so i don't know that much about it but it seems like a fatal flaw in the pricing mechanisms. It just does. It's pick one or the other. There's no gray area. There's no compromise. There's no wiggle room until someone blinks and goes back for a reassessment of the price. Sometimes that's too late in the game. And consequently, some, maybe some uh, crab gets left in the water or you get a much, le much lesser price than the initial offerings. So I think we start with how we set the price and then maybe avoid some of these loggerheads and political intervention into yields and profits and the like, because, I mean, what are we going to tell Loblaws? How much are you making on those tomatoes, right? I don't, I don't know where these types of political interventions end, but I'll, okay, I'll just make the question very, very fundamental. I think the price-setting uh, formula and mechanism is deeply flawed. You. Well, I think we've tried other situations before. We've had some of the same, same loggerheads, is all I would say. The only difference with Loblaws is, correct me if I'm wrong, but anyone can move in and set up a, a grocery store or, you know, we use pizza shop. There's really no intervention to that. Anyone can. The difference with, you know, and I would say fishing licenses, you know, fishing enterprises from the federal government or processing licenses, they're basically li limited entry, if that's the term they use, right, uh, factors, uh, businesses, that are 
given a you know people get those again the privilege and there's rules and regulations around those you know the federal government and the provincial government talk about economic benefit and sustainability and all these things and i guess uh, i don't know if there's a clear answer because we had the same debate that's for sure and i'm not going to point any elbows but uh you know both systems have seemed to get at the same situation so uh, all I'm saying here this morning is, I guess, it's a real, uh, it's a real serious situation. We have thousands of people that uh, right now are out of income. And, uh, you know, like I said, um, the Northern Peninsula in particular are being in a very, very difficult position. So, uh, you know, I just wanted to point that out there. Okay, and you know what, uh, Loblaws? Again, I'll just reiterate that the market, <laughs> the market suggests... Yeah, sorry, but that, you go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say Loblaws poor, poor choice, but other regulated industries that have to get approvals and permits and the like, maybe oh, you know uh, Rio Tinto or Equinor or whoever. That yeah. that was the point I was making. Loblaws was a terrible yeah. choice of company. So point no, taken. No, no, Last I, word. You know, and I appreciate I appreciate the point. Again, I guess I would say is I'll go back to my original point is uh, we know we know everyone knows that the margins in shrimp are difficult with the fuel prices. We've gone from and, you know, everyone's dealing with that, right? Uh, and probably, uh, you know, I speak for one of our harvesters, long-time harvester, said probably not going to be very much money made in shrimp by anyone this year. But, you know, our prices, our position, I'm just saying, is much, much closer to what the market reports in the history of this fishery show uh, than, than what ASP has put forward in our view. I mean, I guess those reports are available for anyone. So, you know, we're, we're hoping that... Uh, we're hoping there will be a positive outcome right now. I guess all I can say is it looks it looks uh, it looks as difficult as it did uh, beca- kind of before we started on Monday. So we'll see where it goes. Right. Appreciate the time this morning, Jason. Okay, Patty. Thank you, and all the best. Take good care. Bye bye. As Jason Spinger leads the West Coast rep for the FFAW, the racket on shrimp is real, but I, I think we have very similar annual spats on pricing on different species. It's an annual rite of passage. Okay, uh, I'll take a break. Take a break on time here. Debbie Sampson's in the queue. It's PTSD Awareness Month. We'll hear from Debbie right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number two. Good morning, Debbie. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. How about you? I'm great. I'm great. Okay. I wanted to talk about uh, PTSD Awareness Month, which June is, uh, but I just wanted to put a a little bit more information out there. Most people would probably have heard of PTSD, and we hear about that when soldiers, as an example, come back from war and they end up with PTSD, or years ago it would have been called shell shock. But there is something called complex PTSD, which I have, and I just wanted to create a little bit more awareness. And complex PTSD happens when, in my case, i just use my case as the example, I grew up in a violent home where there was abuse, and I have uh, had abuse throughout my whole life. And basically, for me, uh, it was like living a war at home. Soldiers go to war, and I live the war at home. So that environment that I was in affected my developing brain. And as a child, uh, you know, our brain is developing, and when we have all that trauma, our brain is affected, and I ended up with complex PTSD. Uh, you know, and you're, I think it's an interesting point you make right off the bat here is we generally, or some people directly associate PTSD with returning from outside the wire, from a war zone. But it could be anything. 
sexual yeah. abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse, uh, a traumatic incident like for first responders at, a, at an accident scene or what have you. So it comes and manifests its way in many different forms. And you, you mentioned complex PTSD. We know a lot more about it as time goes on. And, you know, whether it be stigma attached to getting some mental help, but it's manageable. It's treatable. How different is it treatable for whatever PTSD normal is versus complex? I'm sorry, what did you say? How different is it? Yeah, it's, insofar as getting the treatment, because it can be managed. You can get treatment. You can overcome your PTSD, as my understanding from the reading I've done in the past. Yeah, I've, uh, I, was, uh, I think I've had it you know, all my life, but uh, I've, I fought it. And uh, yeah, I'm a counselor. I was a counselor for 25 years. And 10 years ago, I just crashed. I couldn't, I've been unable to work ever since. And that's when I was diagnosed with complex PTSD. Um, 10 years ago, I certainly wouldn't have been able to talk to you because I was not well enough. But I've come a long ways in the past 10 years. But I, you know, I'm still not well enough to be able to go to work, but I'm able to talk about it. I just recently published my autobiography about my abuse and about uh, my road to recovering. And my hope is that someday I will totally recover, but I want to create awareness and and help others uh, realize that there is hope. Uh, But in order to treat complex PTSD, you need to have specialized training. Uh, It's it's a unique, uh, it's a unique illness. And I've had some very bad experiences with um, places that I've been for help that have not uh, had uh, the proper training and um, didn't understand the illness well enough. And thankfully, being a counselor, I was able to help myself um, and find ways to recover. But my my concern also is for the people out there who don't have the background that I do. And I have talked to so many people, especially since publishing my book, who are really concerned about the health care system in this province that is failing them in this regard. There's there's not enough and there's not enough uh, people to treat uh, people with these illnesses. And there's also not enough specialized people to treat uh, complex PTSD and PTSD and the other uh, symptoms that go with it. So people are on waiting lists and horribly long waiting lists, and that, that's a concern as well. So when we try to make this a, a format or a form to talk about mental health, mental illness, or mental wellness, is there a difference in the way that we could learn about and talk about PTSD, or should we talk about it in the same envelope as we do with mental illness? Is there a difference to the, to the both of them, or am I splitting a fine hair? No, um, it's all mental illness, and I mean, with complex PTSD, for example, I have depression, I have anxiety. You know, some people maybe just have depression and anxiety, but I mean, I have flashbacks and nightmares and all those things because of... Um, I don't have it anymore, thank goodness, but, you know, I had. Um, so you still lump it all under mental illness, but in order to to treat uh, complex PTSD, you need specific training to um, to treat the person with that. I've been for help, and I knew because of my background that what the individual uh, was doing with me, uh, the way, the route that they were going, that it, was more, it can be more damaging. So you have to be really careful when you're treating someone with this type of illness. So, yes, it's all lumped under mental illness, and uh, that's really important. I appreciate making time. Debbie, would you like to add anything else, somewhere people can go to find out more information or what's happening during this Awareness Month of June? 
One more thing that I really need to add is that my illness is caused because the people who should have protected me as a child didn't, and that includes my biological family, that includes the system, because I was in the system that didn't, they didn't protect me. And, you know, I am six, almost 64 years old, and here we are all those years later, and I'm still seeing children who are not protected, and, and I see it all the time around me, and those children, sadly, it scares me, they're going to end up like me with these type of illnesses if we don't start to understand. You know, if, if as someone is called into a home where there's abuse that's happening, uh, you know, if you see a bruise, you're definitely going to do something about it. But the the mental effects that uh, living in an environment where there's uh, abuse, where there's uh, a narcissistic, in my case, there was a narcissistic parent, living in those types of uh, environment is affecting our developing children's brains, and we have to protect our children, and we're not doing enough. And it it just it maddens me and it saddens me to see that all these years later, our, our poor little children are not being protected. So I have to add that in there. Well, and, and fair enough. And it's just yesterday there was a news story about the provincial government to apologize to uh, victims of child sexual abuse at uh, the different youth homes, whether it be Whitburn, one in Pleasantville, and some maybe one in Torbay, and a settlement that is yet to be approved of $12.5 million. The evil is around us. People, you know, there was folks who were committing these atrocities, and there were folks turning a blind eye to it, and they're both equally as bad, if you ask me. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning, Debbie, and thank you for making time for us. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, that story is, I mean, is, I, people also ask, you know, well, what does the apology accomplish? An apology is a start, you know, and compensation is a start. And, you know, you, you wonder where some of these victims ended up in life. You know, you're scarred for life. So it's one thing to come forward and to go through the process with Lynn Moore and get an apology and get some financial compensation, but additional continuing support because you know full well many of these young people didn't come out the other side with any real hope in life because they were brutalized. Let's uh, pick up where we left off on line number three with Robin. Uh, Robin, you're back on the air. Sorry about that, Patty. Everything okay? Um, yeah, no, I, I had an escape dog into the street, so um, okay. a bit of panic. Um, actually, it's uh, it's interesting that I came in after this call um, the, the lady before talking about uh, PTSD. I was actually diagnosed with CPTSD last year. And um, it's, uh, it's been a while trying to get it all sorted out in my own head. But I just want to say that trauma, uh, it, it, through that process, I learned that trauma is not necessarily, like you said, like people just coming back to the war. Trauma is how we, it's how we store things in our body. Okay. And so some people are more sensitive, okay? They're more emotional, more sensitive. They feel things a bit more than others. I'm one of those people. Uh, and therefore, uh, that made me more susceptible to trauma because I would store things in my body. And I did this. I mean, I grew up in a, in a wonderful home with wonderful parents. But an incident that happened to me as a young child um, and how... Uh, it was handled after the fact, uh, caused me to develop in ways where I, I was fearful of my own self, I was fearful of others, 
And I, I built this very strong uh, boundary around me. And like your previous caller, I eventually, you know, couldn't take it anymore. And through all, all that, I was suffering with anxiety and depression. And since my diagnosis and the therapy that I have fortunately been able to pay for, um, I have been able within a year to, you know, come to terms with it and learn from it and, and help other people. And so I want to say that in terms of the policy that I was talking about before, we need to be bringing a trauma-informed policy approach to everything we do in social services. And so, you know, me telling you that as, you know, privileged child with a wonderful family, I went through it and went, you know, unrecognized. Can you imagine the children that are growing up in homes where there's drug and alcohol abuse or hunger or domestic violence? And the impact that that has on those children and what happens to them as they, they age and, and become independent um, members of our society. And so I think, you know, social policy and our approach towards it has really um, waned in the last decade or so, really, since uh, Danny Williams, I mean, I say his name with uh, some trepidation, but his poverty reduction strategy, I mean, it, it, was, it was saving us. And when I look back on where we've gone since we started stripping back those programs and not making it the forefront of our approach to social policy, um, this is what you're seeing now. This is the effect. And so there's no money being spent on trying to find solutions as to why people are ending up in these positions. You're seeing money go to organizations for more transitional housing where, you know, it's temporary. We keep them, we keep people who are suffering under our control and make them feel like they're indebted to the system. And, and we're, we're not spending the time trying to build people up, bring the services that we offer into the communities that actually need the services. I mean, right now you've got people coming from all over the city going to the gathering place. And if you suffer from drug addiction, uh, if you su suffer from any antisocial, mental health issue, uh, a place like the gathering place can be, uh, you know, uh, extremely difficult to go. On top of that, they only serve a certain type of person, you know. You, they separate people by their age. Um, by their um, position in terms of like, are they, you know, criminals or, you know, or are, um, are they, do they have mental health difficulties? And so the, ser the services are offered in a very uh, siloed approach. Uh, there's very little trauma-informed practice. I, I highly suggest that anyone who is rolling their eyes at what I'm saying right now about trauma-informed, that they look up uh, a gentleman named Gabor, G-A-B-O-R, Mate, M-A-T-E. Gabor Mate is a family physician uh, who has done uh, a lot of study in trauma, and he's worked with people on the streets of Vancouver who have been suffering from addiction. And if you go on YouTube, there will be thousands of videos that will come up when you search his name. Spend a few minutes and, and see what his theory is all about. And hopefully people can open their eyes to the fact that 
you know, not everyone who is suffering from an addiction or homelessness or um, any of those sorts of things, mental health issues, not all of them are there because of the mistakes that they made. Most of the time, it's failures of the system and the system safety net to protect them. Robin, I appreciate uh, getting back on the air and finishing your thoughts. Thank you for this. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, and, you know, we don't know why people end up where they are. You know, if you're in the foster family system, you age out at 18. You're someone else's problem. If you're chronically absent from school, which is, uh, some 6,600 students are annually in this province, after grade 12 or whenever you quit, what becomes yet? We don't know. We don't track it. We don't know how you were absent, why you were absent, whether it be violence at home or food or transportation or illness or whatever. We just don't know. So how did you end up on social assistance? We don't know. What was the cause to have you on that path in life? We don't know. What do we do for seniors who either have uh, our haves or have-nots and how they ended up there, what we could have done about it as they were working their way through as a professional or whatever between the ages of 18 and 65? We're not really sure. You know, we've got an awful lot of left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. And it happens all the time. And I think, you know, trauma-based approach to these things is obviously critically important because people that are lining up to get into the shelter at the gathering place, they don't all have the same story. And so if we don't have the people inside trained to deal with them today, and even more importantly, or as importantly, is to understand and to intervene before people end up in lives where they are forced to find a mercy shelter, where they're forced to live on the street, where they're unable to get a job. You know, more to be done because it's not just the education department's problem until you're 18. It's not just the criminal justice problem after you turn 18. There's just things that we can do to make things easier and better. And again, everything costs money. Intervention early before you end up engaged with the criminal justice or the healthcare system is going to save us money in the long term. We're better off as a, uh, as a society. We've checked off a moral uh, box and we save money, place is safer. I mean, it's all those things. But we don't really do it because why are someone else's problem when you get to a certain age or a certain predicament? Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. So early May, 166 Ukrainians touched down in St. John's at the International Airport. And just a couple of days ago, 177 people also made their way from Poland to St. John's and various parts of the province. Let's go to line number 10. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Corner Brook. He's the Minister of Immigration, Population, Growth and Skills. That's Jerry Byrne. Minister Byrne, you're on the air. Thanks very much, Patty, for having me on this morning to talk about some stuff that I think a lot of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are excited. But I know... A lot of Ukrainians are excited to be here in our province, and they felt very, very welcome. So thank you to everyone who has been front and center in supporting our Ukrainian friends as new neighbors. How has it worked? I guess it's a direct uh, relationship with the uh, team in Warsaw, Poland. But you hear news reports of they've already had lodging prior to arrival. They've already secured a job prior to arrival. How are those mechanisms working? Well, they're working very, very well. You know, it's... Um, this is not, you know, we're just delighted that Ukrainians are coming all all throughout Canada. But uh, we're looking at, always looking at seeing how other provinces are doing it to learn how we can make it our own process better. And, Patty, one of the things that I'm starting to pick up, and I think you may be seeing or hearing on the news from other provinces, that some Ukrainians are not having so great a time. Um, it's not, the transition has not been as easy uh, in arriving to other parts of the country as it has been in Newfoundland and Labrador. They, 
There are people facing significant employment barriers, housing barriers. Um, they haven't had a, a place to stay. They've, they arrived in Canada uh, on federal charters and were given, granted uh, two, uh, 14 days of temporary accommodations. But after that, all funding and support stopped. I contrast that with how it's occurred in Newfoundland and Labrador, where we really we took the initiative and we took the decision to develop a relationship with those who wanted to come here. We we promoted, we we advertised, we we said that there is an option here. We are welcoming you to come to our province. If you decide to come to our province, this is what how we may be able to help you. And in the process, we reached out to employers here in our province to say, would you like to, you know, we've, we've identified these people, individuals, families that want to come to our province. Here are the talents, the skill sets that they have. Would anyone be interested in potentially hiring these people? We had job interviews conducted before they ever arrived in the province. We had housing, certain housing arrangements that were conducted, that made before they ever arrived in the province. So, listen, nothing is ever perfect and seamless, but I can report, and I say not with a smugness, but with just a, a certain level of pride, maybe other provinces can pick up where we, where we started. Um, we're having some really great success in welcoming our Ukrainian family uh, and new neighbors uh, here in our province, which I think other provinces will start to duplicate. Unfortunately, uh, immigration, refugees, takes on a, a nasty tone in some corners. But one thing we know is you know, some people will think that refugees or immigrants, they're bringing nothing to the table. They're not bringing a skill set. There's problems with language barriers or what have you. Well, that's an exaggeration. That's simply not true and is certainly counterproductive. You know, what do we do to try to match their skills? Because we have a national issue with, you know, uh, translating credentials, whether it be the female Ukrainian doctor who's made her way here. She was part of the first group that came with the five people pursuing their master's at Memorial University. So how do we make sure that your engineering training, your training as a biochemical engineer, things that you can do here because you did them there, but you can't. You end up finding a job, the first job you can get because you want to keep the roof over your head. What do we do on that front as a province? I know it's a national conversation, but we can lead the charge. If we're leading the charge with a team in Warsaw, we can be part of that conversation too. I really appreciate that question because uh, before I uh, got uh, in the queue to get on your program, I just uh, wrapped up a conversation with the uh, Newfoundland Labrador College of Physicians and Nurses on foreign credential recognition. How do we streamline the process? How do we maintain very, very top, top standard of professional quality of care and safety? How do we maintain that top, top quality, but remove unnecessary uh, archaic barriers to entry into, uh, into practice? Yesterday, I spoke with the, uh, the professional association, the Newfoundland Labrador Professional Association of Engineers and Geoscientists on this very issue. Uh, professional accreditation, there's about 47 different professions uh, practicing in Newfoundland and Labrador and across Canada, which are what's known as self-regulating. They're professional bodies that under statute, under the laws passed by the legislature, we grant them the ability to self-administer their codes of practice, their licensing requirements to be able to to practice in Newfoundland and Labrador and, and, and across the country. So we do that because who knows best uh, the, the practices that are necessary to make sure that bridges don't fall down, that the engineers that, that design our bridges are uh, of top, top quality, those that provide our, our health care are of top, top quality. Well, it's the organizations and professions themselves, but sometimes 
they need some, uh, in a collaborative way, a, uh, just some help in removing, identifying unnecessary barriers, removing those barriers, streamlining some processes, enabling the Ukrainian physician who came to Newfoundland and Labrador on the last airlift uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, a pathway to enter into full practice as a physician. These are the things, Patty, that are already underway, and I take that very, very seriously. This question, I'll see if I can word this appropriately. How do we ensure that provincial and federal programs, whether it be with uh, subsidizing wages or what have you, is used fairly, applied appropriately by the private sector? Because if we have someone, you know, it's not like they're coming to steal your job. I'm not trying to paint the, that picture. But if someone has a job and they lose a bunch of hours because there's a, a cheaper way for an employer to hire a newcomer, then we're just creating another issue. We're solving one, creating another. So how do we ensure that these programs are applied the way they're intended to be applied, as opposed strictly based on profitability for one employer or another? Oh, that's a really important question. I'm glad you asked it because it highlights some of the differences, especially with the Ukrainian refugees that are coming here. Under the federal rules, so I, I uh, administer the Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador Labour Market Development Agreement, which uh, provides me with certain tools to be able to assist employers one of the federal rules that are in place around that particular program that includes a wage subsidy program uh, are that only permanent residents are available and eligible for any kind of wage subsidy. So the Ukrainians, of course, under the federal mandate, the Ottawa's mandate, they are not, Ottawa is not granting the Ukrainians permanent residency upon arrival. They're granting them a three-year open work permit, uh, and, uh, and that's it. So they are not considered permanent residents. So I want to allay any fears. Um, I, you know, I think there should be some flexibility in some regards because there are many, many professions uh, that just that Newfoundland and Labrador employers are having great difficulty, a long time difficulty in being able to fill certain positions. But the truth is, and I'll say this and say it out loud and may, say it again uh, for anyone who may not necessarily understand this, is that we are not allowed to give a wage subsidy to a Ukrainian refugee under the uh, under our labor market development agreement because they are not permanent residents. Right. I, I tried not to make it specifically about Ukrainians yeah. because we're welcoming people from all over the world. Right. And some of these things pop up. And then, of course, a conversation that is already emotionally and politically charged becomes even more so because right. people think the system is being gamed or something has been to their detriment. You, you, you know the point I'm trying to make here. Yeah, absolutely. Patty, you have been very, very fair-minded. I've listened to you. The, you know, there are legitimate concerns. Uh, that need to be raised that are you know that are proper topics of conversation about uh, the balance between local you know long time residents local residents who have been in the workforce and those that are newcomers uh, but we really need you 've been very very balanced on that conversation, and I really appreciate it because it 's brought a sense of sensibility a reasonableness to this. I want to really say to everyone that listen. There are no jobs that, being, that are being filled that have not been advertised for quite some time, that have been left unfilled for quite some time. You have seen it. I've seen it. We've all seen it. There are job vacancy signs, help wanted signs. There are many, many jobs in Newfoundland and Labrador which have been advertised for quite some time that are not being filled locally. That's why it's so, so important to be able to fill those jobs with newcomers. And I'll say one other additional piece of evidence to this, the Newfoundland and Labrador unemployment rate has gone down. We have, while we're increasing the number of, of newcomers to our province, 
Statistics Canada reports to each and every one of us, to us all, that the unemployment rate in Newfoundland and Labrador is actually decreasing. Why? One of the reasons may be, in part, that newcomers are adding so much to our economy and making our economy ignite that the unemployment rate is going down because there are more opportunities for employment throughout Newfoundland and Labrador, giving that evidence-based analysis to why having new people come to our province is so important. It actually drives the economy, as you pointed out. It increases employment opportunities and lowers our unemployment rate. It expands the tax base. I mean, if people really want to be honest about the impact of financially or fiscally of immigration in the country over the last 50 years, it's out there for people who care to absorb it. There's also some of the jobs that have been created as part of the economic bounce back through COVID. There's another important number there, though, that a little bit skews the unemployment numbers is the numbers of Canadians who have dropped out of the labor force. They're not even looking anymore. So we, when we don't factor that in, we maybe paint a little bit of a rosier picture than is actually the reality, but job numbers are strong. They're the highest in Canada since 1976. Uh, I think it's around 5%. We are on a better track than we once were. So I think there's a variety of factors that contribute to that. But there's every reason to think that, you know, the, the politics... And the partisan gain, when we talk about the economy or immigration or what have you, kind of derails or sidetracks us from what's actually happening. You know, like the economy is not ruins nationally. I know we've got some troubles here in the province. I feel it. I hear it from people all the time who are in a bit of a struggle. But the bounce back is real. There's half many more jobs in Canada than there was pre-pandemic. That doesn't mean everything is rosy. Net debt GDP is manageable when compared to other G20 countries. That doesn't mean that Trudeau is doing a great job. It doesn't mean anything like that. It just means that numbers are what numbers are. But let's include them all, including workforce participation and or unemployment and or social services and or post-secondary grads. All of it is involved in the conversation if we're getting a clear picture. Absolutely. And, you know, here's another interesting number, which I just received this morning, is that uh, the federal government, which controls and manages, uh, regulates temporary foreign workers, sometimes seasonal industries in particular, sometimes uh, short-term employment gaps uh, are, are felled by temporary foreign workers, those that you know are come, enter into a specific job, come to the Newfoundland Labrador, come to the country for a specific job uh, with, without the intention of staying permanently necessarily. Uh, Newfoundland and Labrador had 175, approximately 175 temporary foreign workers uh, come to the province in the latest uh, year that uh, the federal government provided me with access to data, 175. PEI had over, uh, had over 600 temporary foreign workers. Of the 175 that came to Newfoundland and Labrador, I'd never forget, some of them, many of them, about 30 of them are computer scientists and doctors who are filling locums, uh, filling short-term jobs. We have, one of the, we have the smallest, the lowest number of temporary foreign workers coming to our province than any other province in Canada, and not by just a, you know, a, a, a small margin, by a significant margin. We do not use temporary foreign workers. We employ permanent Newfoundlanders and Labradorians with whenever and wherever we can, and the numbers prove that. So when we have a job, which is unfilled by a Newfoundlander and Labradorian. It's because it's been unfilled for quite some time, and that's where the newcomer comes in, bringing those skills. And, Patty, one last, just finally to put this in context, when the plane load of 177 Ukrainians came to Newfoundland and Labrador, it, we, we, we invested $350,000 to bring that plane load in. They are responsible to get a job and job quickly to support their family. When that plane landed in Torbay, a couple of nights ago, 
I would argue, and I say this sort of, you know, with my tongue on my cheek, but they brought with them about $30 million in education with them that they paid for, they, they earned, and they brought on that plane with them when they arrived in Newfoundland and Labrador. For a $350,000 investment, uh, I, I don't have that number. I just say that just to, to sort of make a point. But they brought millions of dollars in education, talent, and skills with them, which they are donating to each and every one of us. God bless them. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Minister. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mr. Jerry Burney's Minister of Immigration, Population, Growth, and Skills. Let's take a break. Bill's in the queue to talk about drugs on the street. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Bill. You're on the air. How you doing, Patty? Not too bad. Thanks. How about you? Yeah, I'm calling. I'm doing pretty good. Well, I hope so anyway. I'm calling in about um, drugs and that that are available on the street now today. Okay. Some of them are so they're very dangerous. It's not funny. It's causing big sores under people's skin and everything. Like it's almost like they've got the plague or something. What kind of drugs are we talking about? Cocaine. Cocaine mostly. Yeah. Okay. It's supposed to be cocaine, but who knows what's in it? Yeah, you never know what's in it. And, of course, the, what seems to be relatively new, and we talk about fentanyl that's been uh, uh, added to the drugs, which I don't even understand drug dealers doing that. You're killing your customer, and there should be additional layer of crime and criminal punishment for including or selling fentanyl. But it's just madness what's going out there, on out there, and people, unfortunately, not enough people care. Yeah, the thing I don't understand about fentanyl is that fentanyl is a downer. Cocaine is an upper. Why would you want to mix both? Don't know. Let's, let's look at John Belushi thing, Anna. Yeah, I mean, the, the conversation about drugs is tricky to have, but there's there's things we can do that can keep people safe, save us yeah. some money, make the community safer, all the time just trying to do the right thing, but there's just not enough political will to talk about it. I think I think that there should be enough political will to start talking about like some of these Scandinavian countries that give their their uh, their, their populations free drugs. Well, you know? it's not necessarily like that. Like in Switzerland, for instance, uh, yeah. you can get prescribed pharmaceutical grade heroin as opposed to get it on the street. Get hepatitis B, get HIV, or overdose and die. So there's yeah. things, and you know, heroin. The medical community will tell you, and I don't use any of these drugs. And I'm not promoting it, nor am I trying to enable anybody. Heroin is less uh, harmful to the body than methadone. But yet we choose methadone as a course of treatment. That, that, well, that's because uh, heroin's a lot, a lot harder to get off of, really, right? Sure. Oh, absolutely. That, no question. We're, we're cut down slowly, little bit by little bit by little bit, right? But I'm not talking about methadone or the heroin that's out there. You can tell the heroin pretty easy with fentanyl in it anyway because it's got little green dots in it, right? Okay. I, I, I don't know that. But fair I enough. Got, I, I got I got a fair understanding of everything. I, d I don't want to be at it, but I am. Give us a second. I'm, I am at it. I, I'm trying to give up. I'm almost 20 days now with nothing. It, it's crazy. But I'm seeing these people out there, and they'd sell their mother for 50 cents, you know? And I, I don't understand where that's coming from. Newfoundland was never like that. Newfoundlanders always looked after each other. Now, now it's all money, 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 money. You got people out there that are totally crazy. We're, we're in a province right now that's in the next couple of months, in the coming months, 
we're going to start seeing a lot of shootings and stuff like that. We're already seeing it. We're going to see a lot more. Like last year, over on the year before, over on Spencer Street, there was several shots fired off. And that's nothing compared to what's going to happen. Could be some senior citizen upset down in his bed sitting room and get shot dead because he was sitting down in his bed sitting room. You know what I mean? You paint a very bleak picture, although it's probably more accurate than that. It, it's, so, it's so bleak, it's not funny. I'm suffering with now myself. Bill, let me ask you a question. How, are you cold turkey, or what are you doing to kick the habit? What kind of help are you getting? It's mostly cold turkey. You go to the, you go over to the hospital, and like I've got a few times of pain in the chest and that, and it's drug-seeking uh, attitude thing, right? I'm not addicted to opiates. I never was. I can't stand the things. Morphine, I throw up a whole bedroom full. You know what I mean? But they don't believe that for one second. So what are you addicted to? Cocaine. Cocaine. And whatever's in it now, it, it, it's hurting people. It's a terrible drug. It's hurting people bad. I think that anybody who's caught doing that, knowing full well that, they should, that they're doing that to people, should be given a life sentence, and that's it. Never get out again. We certainly need to, yeah, we got to layer the criminal code as it pertains to drugs because, you know, people are willfully putting fentanyl, which just the the tip of a pin can kill you, then... Not even the tip. Yeah, okay, I don't know what the measurement would be, but a very, very minuscule amount is extremely dangerous. Uh, Bill, look, hang in there, man. Uh, if you're 20 days clean, let's make it 21. Just keep going. I appreciate the time and the warning to those who are buying drugs on the streets to be very wary of what's going on and knowing that there's some really harmful substances out there. So be careful, and you hang tough, man. I like, it's like I, I've lost a couple of kids, a couple of kids. Like, you know who I am. And things are really hard sometimes, right? Listen, if you think I can help out and you want to give a, you know, even if you just want to check in with us every now and then to let us know that it's day 21 or day 31 and hopefully day 101, uh, just do that. Maybe use whatever you got to do for motivation to stay clean, and I appreciate your time. Hang tough. I want to see everybody off. That's it. Keep going, man. It's killing people, and they know it's doing it. They're doing it on purpose. And it, and it's ejected, like crystal meth and all that stuff. It's it's destroying people's bodies. It's disgusting. I'm, I'm disgusted about myself. Well, hopefully this warning gives someone uh, second thoughts. And again, you stay in touch and keep doing what you're doing. I'm wishing you nothing but the very best in your recovery, Bill. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks. Take good care of yourself. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Man, let's take a break. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Morning, Jim. You're on the air. Good morning, Eddie. I know you're feeling great. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Jim. Hope you are as well. What's on your mind? <laughs> I am. Uh, I, uh, I call in the troll bouquet to the... Dr. Ruel and his team and all the nurses at the CVICU unit and the special care unit on the fifth floor. Last, last Thursday, I had uh, the first open heart surgery uh, 
performed in Newfoundland that don't cut open your chest. And I was home again by Sunday evening. Good news. So how are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good, i got to say. You know, sometimes it's difficult to get into the system, but when people get into the healthcare system, by and large, you deal with nothing but top quality, educated, experienced, compassionate people. So I'm glad it, I'm glad it went well for you, sir. Yeah, Paddy, i got to say they were top-notch, but... Excellent. Nothing, nothing but uh, care and, and respect. And, uh, yeah, looking at, and totally looking after your needs. That's the way it should be. Yeah, that's that no operation already goes into your rib cage instead of cutting open your chest, right? So what do they do? They actually go in, in through the, underneath your breast and in through your rib cage. Okay. And uh, they done a double bypass for me, in my case. And all I required was one stitch. The way things have changed in the medical advancements is mind-boggling. I know. Yeah, it's cool. Well, hopefully that makes for an easier, uh, speedier recovery for 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 you. Pardon me. And I'm glad you got the kind of treatment that you deserve when you're in the hospital itself. Good to have you on, Jim. Be well. Yeah. Okay. Be be well, Patty. Hard story on Bill. Yeah, hard stuff, man. Hopefully you can stick with it. Yeah. Good stuff. Thanks for this. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, Bye. Jim, take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go to line number four. Barry, you're on the air. And there, Patty, sorry. No problem. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Patty, I'm peeved this morning to the point I'm about to explode. It has to do with DFO and uh, our, our, our silent six liberal MPs in Ottawa. Uh, first thing is the uh, the uh, fishery guardians. We're still nowhere with that. Uh, it seems like they washed their hands of it. Number two is the food fishery. My God, Patty, what's going on with the food fishery? No idea. Why don't take it so long for an announcement? The best thing that could happen this year, Patty, for come home year, is that they have to see the same as last year for the weekends, and the week in September, of course, but also give us back the two weeks in July and the week in August that we used to have for come home year this year. That would be a great idea and go over really well. Will we get that? I don't know, Patty, but, you know, I doubt it, and I'm not a pessimistic person. And, Patty, you know, and why shouldn't why shouldn't our, our uh, Silent Six be uh, after suggesting that and be ahead of the game for the uh, come home here, here in Newfoundland Labrador? And it's, what I really called you about this morning, Patty, was about Clifford Small's uh, bill that he introduced to the House, which got voted down by a margin, I think, 170-something to 150-something. And Patty, this you know, and our silent and our, and our silent six voted against it. Voted against it, Patty. I can't understand it. I mean, you know, this is this in my mind, my opinion, Patty, was the first real positive step to address the uh, the seal industry uh, for God knows how long. And yet here we we let the opportunity slip between their fingers. Now you know, look at Norway for example. They have a uh, they have they they have a seal. But that yet they have a very strong seafood sector, and that's what people are saying. The uh, people are saying that, you know, if Newfoundland and Labrador went back to sealing, we'd lose our seafood sector. And I and I and I don't believe that. With concerns with the silent six, what must they what must they think of us? Hey, when they come home with smiling faces, do they expect to be greeted with you know heroes welcome? I mean, what do they take us for idiots? Even the the bill itself would have only allowed for a conversation regarding a framework for stuff. It wouldn't have it wouldn't have imposed anything immediately anyway. So, I don't know. By the whipped vote is it is what it is. Now I do know that the uh, 
The bill got some support from the Liberal side. A member from Quebec, a member from Ontario, voted in favor of Bill C-251. And I don't have confirmation on Yvonne Jones, but I know that the other five did indeed vote in opposition. Yeah, yeah, and I can't confirm that uh, that's the information that I received, Patty. And I, I'll also bring back bring me back to about 2012, 2014 or so, when our uh, Lieutenant Governor Judy Foote, then MP in the House of, of Commons, uh, gave a grandiose speech about the uh, seal industry here in Newfoundland and Labrador, wearing uh, a seal skin outfit, God love her, and over over her shoulder in the background was Justin Justin Trudeau, nodding his head with, on every word that she said. He was like a, uh, one of those bobblehead dolls, dolls on the dashboard. On Dash Your Car, I mean. I know what you mean. Yeah, I mean, at some point, it's going to be, and the point is coming very quickly here, it's either something will be done or the conversation is over, nothing's going to change, and I think we're quickly approaching that. And I don't think, like even Mr. Small's bill, does that translate to, if government changes hands into the Conservatives, does that mean they're going to do something different than the Liberals or do anything at all? I don't know what leads us to believe that would be the case because it hasn't been the case in the past. You know, we saw some of these trade barriers happen during a conservative government. Did they kick up a stink? Maybe a bit of a stink. But will anything ever change here regardless of who holds the seat of government? I don't know. I really don't know. But anyway, I'll give you the last word on this one, Barry. And I agree, Patty. No more do I. But, you know, we have and hope for the best, I guess. But, uh, you know, it's it's a shame that this bill got voted down. And it's very indicative of the way that uh, Ottawa thinks of Newfoundland and Labrador and the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, in my opinion. Uh, okay. You know, it, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow. It really, really is. And uh, there's so many different things that uh, we could be doing positively, but uh, you just they just prefer to sit back on their haunches and... Uh, Forgive, forgive me my cynicism, but it seems to be they, they, they're just waiting count down days for their pension. <laughs> I think that's a pretty popular sentiment when it comes to politicians of all stripes is get elected, get reelected, serve enough uh, time to satisfy your very healthy and generous pension. I don't know if that's the only intention of anyone who ever seeks elected office, but it sure seems like it with far too many of them. I'll give you that much, Barry. Yeah, and I agree with Hattie. I don't think it's—I don't think it's all of them, but it certainly seems to be the one—the uh, the attitude of the ones that are in there now. That's for sure. It seems they have had a, a tough run here. There was, you know, the popular thought was, say, for instance, uh, in the oil business, if Baden Nord had to be nixed, oh, that might have been the end of the road for, or possibly the end of the road for some safe liberal seats here in the province with the next uh, federal election. So they've had a couple of wins, but. I don't suppose we're all going to see wins delivered in every category. This one feels like a loss, though, with this particular bill. Certainly for folks who are involved directly or indirectly with the fishery, they they are not welcoming this particular decision at all. And I'm hearing from them a lot. Anyway, uh, last word, Barry, because I do have to run. Yeah, I agree, Patty. They have done some good things, but it seems that when it comes to our outdoor resources, it's, it's just, that's where we're still really struggling and uh, having a hard time and getting any cooperation from Ottawa. In this, and I, you know, once again, I point out the over three hundred fifty million dollars that they that they grant to uh, British Columbia fisheries, but yet not a cent here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And all we're looking for is get the uh, fishery garden guardians uh, extended a few extra weeks so they can uh, protect the Atlantic salmon from the uh, nets of would-be poachers. Yeah, the river guardian issue. I, I do know that it becomes a dollar that is spent with a private sector company who wins a contract. 
But if you don't fund it to the point we have enough guardians working long enough during the season, then what's the even what's the what's the uh, the intended outcome here? We're not making things any better because those who are willing to be poachers, they know exactly what the schedule is for the river guardians, and they can just bide their time until they're no longer on the river. So we're kidding ourselves to think that uh, we've got enough happening on that front. And I would imagine poaching is far more prevalent than we even realize, to be honest, whether that be big game and or uh, in the province's rivers. Uh, Barry, off to the break I go, but I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Patty. It's always been a pleasure. Mine. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right, let's go ahead and take ourselves a break. When we come back, still plenty of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the NDP member of the House of Assembly, elected in and serving to folks at Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. Good morning, Jordan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. What a lovely morning today, isn't it? Tis that. Yes. So no, I, so I called today just because to talk about it, you know, in your preamble, you do mention you know about the, the rental crisis that St. John's is about to face. Uh, it's you know very similar to what we've been facing for almost two and a half years here in Labrador West, where there's just no rental properties available uh, in the in the entire region of Labrador West right now. And yeah, you look at it there, you know, where we, we're talking about you know growth in the mining industry, we're talking about growth. There is not a single thing available here right now. You know, I, I guess affordability and availability has slightly different flair or feature depending on where in the province we're talking about. The the boom bust cycles of Lab West are, I guess, similar to the pressures that you feel in St. John's. It's a funny thing too, right? Because there's so many different factors at play here. Around here, it's maybe uh, long-term rentals have converted to Airbnbs. Maybe more people have moved to this region looking for a rental. Maybe it's a stress test for mortgages. Maybe it's a variety of things. In Labrador, there's always been a capacity problem, period, hasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, even in the low times in 2014 when we saw the downturn in the you know, the market stuff, rental usage was still high. Uh, and that's because of, you know, one, the, the mortgage stress test. Uh, when that was implemented, um, that actually added to the rental stop because people coming into the region um, – couldn't obviously get a mortgage, and, and I, you know, just I, yesterday, just had a, you know, I browsed through the current real estate listings in in Labrador West. There's roughly about 50 houses on the market in Labrador West right now. The average price for a bungalow, four hundred thousand dollars. The average price for a townhouse, uh, three hundred thousand dollars. The average price for a mini home built in the 1970s, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So it's it the big part of it is affordability because people can't afford these mortgages, and right now. And they're they're stuck in you know they're they're forced to try to find rental because obviously the mortgage stress test. So right now, we have that. On top of that, you have all these large contracting companies from St. John's and the island right now coming up doing work in the mines. Right now, they instead of you know renting out bunkhouse space or renting out uh, uh, hotels, they buy apartment buildings or they buy houses and turn them into bunkhouses. So now we actually have less rental units on the market in Labrador West than we did uh, five, six years ago. So right now, you know, the, we have people here who have great paying jobs in mind leaving the area because they can't get a rental unit. Leaving the area for where? Where do they go and still be close enough in proximity to their job? No, they have to quit their job. They quit and go. Oh. They quit and go. We have people leaving this region in Labrador West now quitting high-paying mining jobs, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, leaving to go to um, back to the island or back to the coast of Labrador because they just can't either pass the mortgage stress test because, you know, they're new to the mortgage, you know, you know, uh, rent thing. And especially if you're, uh, 
not a first-time home buyer, second-time home buyer, you know, you're obviously your percentage you have to put down your mortgage is going to be a little bit higher. They just don't have the money at that moment. They need the they need the high-paying job and work X number of months or, or years to get the down payment to get to, you know to buy a four hundred thousand dollar house that was built in 1971. So this is what we are facing here in Labrador West, and. It's not because of lack of thing. Uh, uh, about a month ago, uh, less than a month ago, three weeks ago, uh, Town Lab City put up a proposal for a uh, uh, you know a piece of land they have had up for years for available for subdivision. Not a bite. As of right now, and hopefully now this is the second time they're putting this up, so maybe we might get a bite. We have the town of Wabush who actually selling land at a discount. They actually got permission from the provincial government to sell land at a discount to try to encourage development. Not a bite. So right now, like you said, we're in a predicament where it's just really expensive to build in Labrador. And I always say it's just expensive right now because of the way the market is right now. But the second thing is I call it the Labrador tax just because for some reason to get supplies and everything up here, uh, companies uh, like to charge a little bit more for goods and services. So we got that on top of it. So it, you know, even if they built these houses, they're still going to sell for four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000. So you know, this is where we have a really interesting situation that's actually hurting development of the mining industry. It's a curious state of affairs. So what are proposed solutions here then? Because, I mean, I have some ideas where I live because I'm more familiar with the economy here and opportunities here. So what are the solutions available in Labrador? Well, the first thing is, this, and I don't know, like I said, uh, and it was interesting in the sense I was reading about um, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, um, they had the Victory Houses. Um, which was an interesting prospect where they, uh, CMHC, well, what is now CMHC, start building houses across Canada to make more affordable housing uh, for everybody uh, in general, like just uh, you know, post-war boom, all that stuff. You know, it, they actually built entire subdivisions and sold them. Um, you know, at, at a price that people could afford to help spur the economy. And, you know, there were some in St. John's. There were some in, uh, you know, in, in different uh, maritime provinces uh, that actually, you know, that are still homes to this day that people still live in. You know, they're about 1,000 square feet. But, you know, there's stuff like that that where even the provincial and the federal government need to step in and say, whoa, 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 we're actually going to stifle our own economic development uh, with, the, with, the, uh, with the craziness of the housing market right now. And that's what's happening. We're actually hurting the province's ability right now to export minerals because we can't get our head together over on how to solve a housing process or, or basically ignoring a housing problem right now in the north. Strange because the mining sector is well positioned to have far bigger uh, impact on the provincial economy and the provincial coffers than the oil industry maybe ever had. So, you know, beyond side with that makes sense. Do you surmise the hesitation for these subdivisions that you spoke of is because of the boom-bust cyclical nature of the region? I think it's part of it, but if you actually look at the you know statistics of iron right now, um, even in the downtimes of 2014-2015, it, it did dip, but it was actually, it, it did come back very quickly and then was more of a steady slow incline over the last, you know, I'd say about last six, seven years. That we, we, we had a you know, sharp downturn, but it actually climbed pretty good. And actually, Labrador West grew in population during that time, uh, according to Statistics Canada. So we actually grew as, as a region um, during that time, which was fascinating in its own right. And then we grew again in this latest, um, in this latest uh, statistics from Statistics Canada. But we're actually – our population has actually been growing uh, uh, you know, census over census. So we're actually – poised to keep doing so great. We have over 200 years of ore left in the ground. Iron is the building block of all construction materials. So really to, to say the boom and bust cycle is 
you know, irrelevant at this point. Sure. We, we've been here for 70 years, Patty. We, sure. My, my grandfather came here in, 19, uh, in 1959. My grandfather before that was in Shefferville in 1954. So, you know, we're, you know, we've been here for a very long time, and I don't think we're going anywhere right now. Is Labrador West potentially the first real home for maybe some tiny homes? Um, actually, well, I, and it's from, I live in a mini home. I don't live in a full tiny home. I, I live in a, you know, in, in a, in a prefab mini home. I've lived there my, my whole entire adult life. I bought my house when I was 18 years, uh, 18 years old, fresh out of trade school. Um, I like it. I'm not moving. I'm not getting a bigger house. I don't have no need. Um, a lot of people in Labrador West live in mini homes and they're completely happy with it. So, you know, even small, you know, thousand square foot homes in this region would be, you know, pretty normal for, for Labradorians in yeah. this region. It just popped in my mind. I don't even know if it was a sensible question or not, but I yeah, think absolutely. whatever region or town gets on board with what we're seeing become a real attractive option for people who want to own their own home. They don't need a big home. They're happy enough with the what we call a tiny home. Like, I know there was this one lady who was trying to get permission to build one, Flat Rock or somewhere close by. And it didn't happen. I guarantee you the first community, especially on the Northeast Avalon, that says yes to it, they're going to see people moving to their community for sure. So Absolutely. anyway, I just thought I'd throw it out there. Oh, and, and hey, any, any option is a great option at, at this point right time. But right now, like I said, uh, you have to look at the federal government, CMHC. You know, these, these groups, like CMHC has the ability to unlock so much potential when it comes to housing development. They, they had the ability. They did it in the past. They did it post-war. And, you know, that was one of the greatest construction feats of, uh, of Canadian history was the post-war development. That's how IOC and Tacora and the entirety of, the, of Western Labrador got developed the way it was, was because of post-war development. Right now, you, we, we're poised to do the same thing again when we do our transition as we you know we see like mining and minerals and critical minerals and stuff uh become unlocked it's going to be an equivalent to you know a post-war development in the sense that it's it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of manpower or, or people power uh to actually build you know what what's coming next and right now if you could if you know if we're stumbling over you know making houses available in a uh, in a mining town um we're in some, for some big trouble if we're not planning ahead and thinking ahead Fair ball. Jordan, good to have you on the show. Thanks for the time. Take care, Patty. Take care. YouTube by Jordan Brown. He's the NDP member for Lab West. Let's go to line number two. Stella, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hello. Uh, Yes, uh, I have a a brand new wheelchair, electric wheelchair, and uh, I'm looking for someone to uh, take it. I'm sure there's somebody out there that needs one. The only thing is with it right now, the batteries are dead because when I stored it, I didn't realize uh, they were supposed to be charged up, right? Because I'm not familiar with batteries or anything. But anyway, it's there for the taking. It's brand new. It was probably used about twice. It's never been used outdoors. It was used in a very small house. So just wondering if you know of anybody who might need one. Off the top of my head, I don't, but I guarantee you someone listening right now absolutely would love to have that electric wheelchair. Uh, What part of the province are you calling from? St. John's. You're calling from town. Okay, so for the listeners and even the folks over at the Hub that might have a waiting list looking for an electric wheelchair, we got one. Uh, Guarantee you, Stella, someone's going to contact us. So do you want them to just contact us? We'll contact you. What would you like to do? That would probably be better. Okay, uh, happy to do it. You kind of got to weed out the people. But anyway, uh, like I said, the batteries, uh, just, it takes two batteries, and you can pick them up for uh, $330 at Eastern Medical. That's They're the batteries that go into it. But like I said, it's been sitting here now, and uh, I just really have no use for it, and I can't put it anywhere to store it because it'll ruin it. So I just 
hope somebody, I, I don't want anyone to, you know, I just like to see somebody who needs it to, to get it, right? I think that's great. I'll tell you what, uh, <clears throat> as we're speaking, someone immediately called David Williams about your electric wheelchair. So I'll say goodbye now, but I think David or this other person is going to give you a call shortly to see if we can to help arrange getting that wheelchair to someone who needs it. How's that? Not a problem. Thanks a lot, Stella. Appreciate this. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go line number six. Leo, you're on the air. Good morning, Bennett. Morning to you. Uh, I was uh, listening to Mr. Byrne there, Robin Hood, and uh, uh, I was just wondering, uh, I know he's doing a lot of good work there, and certainly I think he's helping out a lot of people that need help. But what about uh, the young lady that phoned in this morning that never had no place to stay and she was froze to death last night and all that? Who's helping her? I am, for one. You are? Um, okay. But yeah. of course, if, if... I mean, say, you're not hauling down two or three on a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year either and you haven't got millions of dollars to play with like Mr. Byrne has. No, I don't. And what, but... about, the fellow, what about the fellow that phoned in yesterday yeah. and couldn't, buy, couldn't get a bandage? himself yeah i think we got that sorted out too um but you know when we have certain ministers that have certain mandates inside certain portfolios you know it's not to say that that's not his job but his job is quite clearly for immigration population growth and skills so you know i i don't know who we should turn to for these very specific concerns i I do actually but you know I, i get it well I guess the concept that you're going with here is charity begins at home, helping people who are from here, live here, born here, before we help anyone else. Is that where we're going with this, Leo? Yes, that's where we're going, yes. Well, of course, Minister Byrne's mandate is clear. Yeah, I know Mr. Byrne's mandate, but there's something else about this, too, and and God help the people that's going through it over there in the Ukraine. But this is a world problem, not Newfoundland problem. We're here, have this, uh, we got no place, to, there's people here that got no place to live, haven't got no place to lie down, and there's hungry people here, they got to go to the food bank and all that. So certainly we got a problem, too. And I mean, and, and there's something else that I'd like to, to, to put in. You, I, I, I think about the people that are helping them out on, helping out our people on their own with their own resources. These are the heroes, not Mr. Byrne. Okay. All right. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not giving anyone hero status. I'm just not my, it's not what I do. No. I know. But I guess that's about it for this morning. Was it just 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 uh, rough of my feathers this morning, uh, you know, to hear somebody like that young lady that comes on and, and and I mean say I don't know her what she's going through or what her problems are, but I mean say some the, whatever she is or whatever she's not, she deserves a place to stay, you know, uh, where she's not going to freeze it. No, this not this time, not this day and age. Certainly. And then, I mean, say, like we got a governor general there now spending, what, close to $100,000 on a party down to Dubai somewhere. And we've got another thing going on that's we're bringing in a fellow from up in B.C. somewhere, another $90,000. I know that's, that's not, not related, but to a certain extent it is, because if we got that money to throw away, on a party or whatever, we certainly got money to throw away on a, on a person that needs it. Yeah, and that $93,000 you're referring to is for catering simply on the flight. That's yes. not even all-inclusive. That's not fuel. No, that's not accommodations. That's you not... know, 
Jerry. Uh, All right. <laughs> Jerry. Patty, <laughs> I looked at that lady that that, that they run. Well, the one that that was not there before. Governor didn't know there before. I mean, see, I didn't know what she was or what she wasn't, but she was a story, certainly. But I'm looking at that one that they brought in, and I thought, my God, you know, she might be worth the money. But uh, anyway. I'm not sure who we're talking about now. We're talking with the governor general now, the one that's in now, you know. I thought, she's a, she was an indigenous person, and I thought, you know, she'd know that she'd have some respect for uh, what, how we'd, we'd go there. She wouldn't be going and throwing away hundreds of thousands of dollars on a party, for sure. Yeah, the but optics anyway, are terrible. They should know better. They, they should, yes, they should. They certainly should. Yeah. But this happens so often, you know, and then they and and it ha- and it's all swept underneath the rug, and uh, like our, you it's know, not next swept year, underneath the rug. How do, next I week it'll start all over again. I don't know how people say that all the time. We we talked about it off the top of the show. The story's not going mm-hmm. anywhere. It's being covered by every single media yes. outlet in yeah. the country. So swept under the rug. You must have a, a, a translucent rug. Yes, you better believe it. I thought the same thing. <laughs> my, my exact feelings. Okay, appreciate it. Rug. I'll tell you that. Yeah, you have a good day. You too, Leo. All the best. All right, bye-bye. Final word this morning goes to line number 10, the Liberal Member of Parliament for Long Range Mountains. The Minister of Rural Economic Development is Goody Hutchings. Good morning, Minister Hutchings. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm pretty good here in Ottawa. Looking forward to getting home on the weekend. Patty, look, I just wanted to give a call because I know Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are really concerned about the seal predation and the impact it's having on the ecosystem. So I wanted to chat about that for a minute. So in August of 2019, I was with the then Fisheries Minister Wilkinson at the time, and he announced his seal task force. And uh, they delivered their report to the now minister, Minister Murray, uh, a couple of months ago. And I was delighted that she listened. And she listened to the hard work of all Newfoundland and Labrador uh, MPs and all Atlantic Canadians. And she announced that in the the riding with me a couple of days later, where she's taking steps. She's, She's implemented their action plan. Look, we know that the issue we have with seals, it didn't happen overnight it's not going to be fixed overnight but it's a cross-government approach it's just not dfo as you know patty we've got a quota of over 400,000 animals that hasn't been taken so how do we do the market development um and it like i said it's cross-government it's economic development it's trade it's small business it's sure but why vote let's fast forward to 2022 and the fact that six members uh liberal members of parliament voted against bill c251 why vote against something that could have addressed framework for opening up markets address yearly census address the predation itself because an oncoming or an upcoming seal summit maybe just a smoke and mirrors type of exercise which we've seen with so many summits so why vote against this specific bill Okay, so that's a good question, Patty, because C-251 made no reference to science, right? And it, it proposed the census to, you know, to count them, which was over $30 million a year in annual cost. But, Patty, what difference does it make if there's $6 million, $7 million, $8 million? Let's take those resources and put it into economic development. The other part is we've got to make sure that Canada's fish and seafood sector is preserved. The stakes are too high to make mistakes. And we've got to make sure that we don't, there was no impact with significant trade issues. We know other countries are doing it, but we've got to be so careful. You know, I'll just say to all the lobster and crab fishermen out there now, who buys your, the majority of your, your products, right? So we need to make scientific-based decisions. 
And, you know, another thing I'll talk about is, I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, Grenfell Campus of Memorial got this $50 million ocean waste grant there a few months ago. And what they're doing is looking at full utilization of so many species. What are we doing to make sure we don't throw stuff away, as other countries do? So in seals, it's a perfect example. There's not only the pelts, the obvious one, but the oil. It's the healthiest omega-3 in the oil. We've got a fertilizer shortage. We can do fertilizer. There's a young woman out my way doing creams. Um, You know, we can take the meat and do dried protein powder. So So there's so many things that we can do when we get a cross-government approach. All that said, why not, as Mr. Small said, offer solutions or, pardon me, amendments? Take it to committee. Flesh it out. Make sure it includes all of the different moving parts that you suggest. Here. And there is some reference to market expansion inside the bill, which is a, an important component. And we can examine in, in committee what the impact of increased seal harvest and what it means for the other species that our harvesters are selling abroad. So why not just even take it to committee or offer amendments as opposed to simply vote against it? Well, in January, the sponsor of 251 moved a motion at the committee, which was unanimously adopted, to study the impact of seals, right? So Instead of waiting for that to go ahead, we are taking action now. And uh, I can tell you that we've all lobbied hard with Minister Murray, and she gets it. Uh, This summit in the fall is going to be a a combination of internationals coming in to talk about what they're doing. It's not going to be another study. It's going to be listening and learning from those that are doing it better than we are, frankly, how we can learn from that, but to make sure the resources are there in various government departments to take this to the next step. I see this as incredible opportunity in rural Newfoundland and Labrador and, and, and throughout Atlantic Canada, Quebec as well. We've got to make sure there's full utilization um, and make sure that the price is there so our fishers want to go out and harvest these animals. Ah, uh, last one, because we're unfortunately out of time. We've got another issue here with River Guardians. Too few and too short a season. I know it's a $5 million contract that goes to a private enterprise, but the Guardians are saying that all we're doing is allowing the poachers to outweigh the Guardians before they go ahead and string a net across the river. Does that program get enough support, and what, what's your thoughts on expanding the River Guardians, not only for the numbers of them, but the length of time they spend on the river? Patty, look, as you know, I'm a passionate Atlantic salmon fisher, and I encourage every single salmon fisher that's on the... We've got a, a job to do, too, to report, you know, illegal things that we see. It's a conversation that we have, have ongoingly with the minister, and I'll bring it back to her again to say, what can we do to expand this pro- program? And again, working with the province, working with our Indigenous partners, how can we make sure the Indigenous River Guardian program grows, and how can we preserve the Atlantic salmon? And the final message I would give would be we are one of the last places on the planet that has healthy Atlantic salmon stocks. We all need to work hard to preserve them. I appreciate the time. I wish we had more of it this morning, Minister. Thank you. I'll call back, Patty. Take care. Have a good day, everyone. You too. Bye-bye. Scotty Hutchins. She's the Liberal member for the Long Range Mountains. We are indeed out of time, but we will pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.